This morning we are continuing our study together of the book of Genesis, and we are going to be in chapters 33 and 34. If you uh, have your Bible and want to go ahead and turn there, if you don't have a Bible, again, we'd love to bless you with one of those, give you one of those at the info bar. But we're talking this morning about compromise. Compromise, I suspect, uh, we are all quite familiar with that idea of compromise, especially those of us who are married. Heard a joke this past week, marriage is all about compromise, for example, my wife wanted to paint our house blue and I wanted to paint it red, so we compromised and we painted it blue. <laughs> happy wife, happy life, right? That's how many of our compromises go. But when it comes to our relationship with God, there can be no compromising. When God says you paint it blue, then our right response is mountain lake or babbling brook. God, you just name the shade and that's what we're going to do. We don't compromise when God tells us what his will is, yet sometimes that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because of our sin, we're prone to compromise on what God calls us to be and to do, and we are especially prone to compromise for the allure of comfort and under the threat of conflict. Those are your two main bullet points in your bulletins right up front this morning, and we're going to pause throughout this morning, ponder plenty of other smaller subpoints, but I encourage you to keep both of those two main points in mind as we work our way through the message and ask yourself this morning, make this personal, what is God calling me to do to be in my life right now and am I either being lured away and lulled into complacency by the enticements of comfort or do I shrink back under the threat of conflict? Now, like, context here in Genesis 33 and 34 specifically is that God has promised the patriarch Jacob three things, a people, a pledge of prosperity, and a place. Jacob has already gotten the people. He's got four wives, 11 sons, and a daughter. He's got prosperity. He's got livestock and servants coming out his ears. But now God's got to get him back to Canaan, to the promised land. And as we're going to see, there are two big obstacles standing between Jacob and this land of promise, Canaan, namely his brother Esau and a whole bunch of Canaanites. Esau here is going to represent the allure of comfort, while the Canaanite inhabitants of the land present Jacob with the threat of conflict. Chapter 34, when we left off last week in chapter 32, Jacob had finally escaped from Uncle Laban's house in Padanaram, modern-day Turkey. And now he is headed back south, back home. But his first obstacle, is, as I said, is his brother Esau. The last time you remember Jacob encountered Esau, some 20 years prior, he was plotting Jacob's murder after Jacob had tricked him out of both his birthright and his blessing, father's blessing. And so Jacob had to flee north to Haran. But now God has called Jacob back home. And halfway through the Mesopotamian desert here, Esau comes out to meet Jacob with 400 armed men. And so Jacob is understandably terrified. But God appeared to him at the end of chapter 32, and God wrestled with him and threw his hip out of socket. He blessed Jacob, and he renamed him Israel. Strive with God, not with men. And that's where we're going to pick up here in chapter 33. Before we do, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer this morning. 
Father, we thank you this morning again for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. God, that in your word you show us your will and your ways, ways to life everlasting. Father, we confess again this morning that we've all fallen short, we've all strayed from your will, we've all followed our own hearts, our own ways instead. Like Jacob, we compromise, we settle all too often for comfort, to avoid conflict, or simply because we're rebellious and we love our way more than yours. So, Father, we need new hearts this morning. We need hearts that beat after your own heart, hearts of flesh, hearts that desire to follow you, that see the goodness in your commands, that see uh, the beauty of your design for us and your will for our lives, and that desire to to follow you. We know that's the only way that we can please you, and that's what we want. We desire your glory, not our own, this morning. So would you help use this text now to course correct our wayward hearts, to get us back on track, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you make much of Jesus this morning? through your word, for our good and for his glory this morning, we pray. Amen. Now, one of the other major lessons that we're going to learn this morning from both these chapters is that it is not enough to do God's will. We must do it God's way. You've heard that theme repeated a number of times in recent sermons now, but it's especially true this morning. We're going to see Jacob once again do the right thing but in the wrong way. This is the same Jacob who rightfully received the birthright, the blessing, but he went about deceptively stealing it in the wrong way. The same Jacob who rightfully trusted God to prosper him in Haran and yet wrongfully peeled fertility sticks, you remember, in chapter 30, just in case. That Jacob is once again doing the right thing in relocating his family back to the promised land, but once again, he's doing it in the wrong way, as we'll see. Chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, has just wrestled with God all night long. The day breaks, he limps back across the Jabbok River to face his fears, to face his brother Esau, and we hear in verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men were with him. And so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, I love this, because it means that there's hope yet for lifelong sinners like me. Jacob, his just literally grappled with God, with the pre-incarnate Christ. He's had a face-to-face encounter with, with Jesus. God has just made him new. 
gave him a new name, a new hip, to remind him not to lean on his own strength, but on the Lord. But what is the very first thing that Jacob does here, the start of chapter 33? By the way, you'll notice that despite receiving this name change in chapter 32, the author is still referring to him as Jacob. It's because he's still acting like Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, the trickster, the schemer. He's still playing favorites with his wives and kids. He's still fearfully dividing them up into different camps, just in case God lied to him and God fails to defend them if Esau attacks. Hopefully, at least then, Rachel and Joseph, his favorites, can escape. And yet, at the same time, we also do see a spark of newness in Jacob. In chapter 33, verse 3, he himself went on before them. The old Jacob would have, or the old Jacob did send everyone else to face Esau's wrath ahead of him. You remember, he, the earlier strategy in chapter 32 was send drove after drove of servants ahead of him bearing gifts of livestock to Esau to see if Esau was, would accept them or if he's going to slaughter them. But now in verse 3, Jacob himself finally goes out in front. He leads. And he even bows himself to the ground seven times, despite Isaac's blessing in chapter 27, that Jacob would be lord over his brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Remember that. Jacob doesn't flaunt his privilege, his blessing. He humbles himself. Perhaps he's finally learned a little humility. And the lesson that I glean here is twofold. Firstly, for us, a real encounter with the living God will necessarily change you. Jacob is not the same old Jacob. He is different. He is changed. Somewhat. And that's part two of the lesson. If you're not completely changed instantly, overnight, by God, don't lose hope. For most of us, our testimonies just aren't that dramatic. It's not God saved me, and ever since then, I've never doubted. I've never lied again. I've never lusted again. I've never struggled with that old addiction, never missed a daily devotional, never missed an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. That's certainly not my testimony. That's certainly not Jacob's testimony. And so if that's not yours either, I won't necessarily say you're in good company with me and Jacob, but you're at least not alone. But do note this, if you've truly been saved, you will be changed. Even if it's not overnight, 180 degrees changed, you will be changed nonetheless. Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. Your fruit might not be entirely good by the very next harvest season, but it ought to be at least a little better. And it ought to get progressively better with each passing harvest season. That was last week's sermon. God makes us new. Now comes the moment of truth. Jacob braces for Esau's revenge in verse 4, but we hear Esau ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now some pastors preach this as if it's some kind of beautiful family reunion. It's not. 
Maybe it is for Esau, but it's not for Jacob. Jacob is going to make that clear in just a few verses here when he tricks Esau all over again. Esau may be crying tears of forgiveness and reconciliation, but Jacob's are purely tears of relief. <laughs> He's not going to kill me. Verse 5, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children way back behind Jacob in various droves, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down, and last Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. And then these various traveling parties remind Esau, this question he's got, verse 8, what do you mean by all this company that I met? What, what was with all these droves that you sent before you, Jacob? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob doesn't even mention, you know, I was afraid you were going to murder me. Doesn't want to give Esau any ideas. But verse 9, Esau said, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. Now Esau is ready to extend Jacob grace. The free, undeserved gift of forgiveness. But like many of us, Jacob doesn't want grace, does he? He doesn't want to feel indebted to Esau. How many of us hate feeling like you owe people something? I've told you, I, I still struggle with receiving gifts on Christmas, especially if I know you spent more on my gift than I did on yours. Growing up, I would order the cheapest thing on the menu whenever we would go out to eat as a family because I I was in high school still trying to order off the kids' menu because I hated the idea of being indebted even to my own parents. How many of us are like Jacob when it comes to our salvation? We don't want God's grace to be free. We want to earn it. As if we could just help a few old ladies cross the street and now all of a sudden we deserve Christ's death in our place on the cross. I don't think so. Listen, I don't care how many sheep and goats that Jacob offered Esau here. After what he did to Esau, stealing the family inheritance and the blessing, the only way that they are going to be square, that they are going to be even, that they are going to be back on good terms with one another is if Esau decides to freely forgive Jacob. Family inheritance and blessing, that's, that's a debt that Jacob cannot afford, cannot repay. Likewise, you and I, trying to earn our forgiveness with God, it's like dining out at the fanciest restaurant in town, Tony's. You run up a $300 bill, and when the check comes, you realize you don't even have your wallet on you while you're fumbling around in your pocket for some spare change, Jesus walks in and says, put it all on my tab. 
And then you and I have the nerve to respond, Jesus, at least let me cover the tip. We put two old pennies and some pocket lint on the bill. What an insult. We owed God a debt that we could never afford. The only way that our debt gets paid is if we admit it, if we confess our helplessness, beg for forgiveness, and then receive God's free gift of Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. That's his invitation to you this morning. It's free. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You will owe him something, everything. But that's the gospel. That's free gift of salvation in Christ for you and for me. Jacob, despite his insistence on making it up to Esau, he knows deep down, verse 10, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. He's like God because both Esau and God could have killed Jacob, maybe should have killed Jacob, and yet they've both shown him mercy and grace. Verse 11, so please accept my blessing. And then he urged him and he took it. Verse 12, then Esau said, now let us journey on our way and I will go on ahead of you. Now Esau is ready to invite Jacob over to meet his wives and his kids. Settle down, start a family business together. Maybe buy some of those matching sweater vests that Will Ferrell and John C. Riley wear and stepbrothers. Live happily ever after. But Jacob has no intention of being one big happy family with Esau. And he shouldn't. For one thing, Esau, we hear in verse 14, has since moved to Seir, which is south and east of the Dead Sea. It's outside of the Promised Land. So Jacob does the right thing here in refusing Esau's offer, heading to the Promised Land instead, even though Seir would have been, in many ways, the more comfortable sensible place for Jacob to relocate his family. We're about to discover in chapter 34 the kinds of trouble that are just waiting for Jacob and his family in Canaan. It is filled, go figure, with godless Canaanites. But here is Esau weeping for joy to see Jacob again. Esau, who clearly is a quite prosperous man in his own right, Jacob could have had good neighbors, you know, a good, fertile, productive land to live in. Seir had to be a tempting alternative to God's plan for Jacob. And yet, Jacob, to his credit, he doesn't even flinch. He doesn't even consider compromising under the allure of comfort here. He sticks with God's plan, but not in God's way. For starters, he lies to poor Esau again. Verse 13, Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to, to my Lord in Seir. I'll catch up to you. Jacob has no intention of following him to Seir. He's just trying to get rid of Esau. But apparently he's too afraid still of Esau to just tell him the truth and deal with things directly. He's still the trickster, the schemer. Afraid perhaps that Esau will get insulted, he'll get his feelings hurt, and he'll change his mind about not killing Jacob. Verse 15, so Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. They will help you 
find Seer on your journey. Remember, this was before uh, Apple came out with the Maps app on the iPhone. So they're, they're going to help direct you to Seer. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. He says, Esau, trust me. I'll, I'll just meet you there. You go on ahead. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, west, and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Not only does Jacob deceive Esau, more grievously, he disobeys God. Sukkot is also not in the promised land. It's on the way, kind of, and yet Jacob builds a house there. He settles down there. We don't know for how long he remains there, but apparently it was long enough for his kids to have grown up by the time they arrive in Shechem, beginning of chapter 34. So he stays there too long is the answer. Verse 18, Jacob came safely, eventually, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is it. This is the moment that Jacob has been waiting for for 20 long years. His glorious return, his homecoming. He is finally back in the promised land right where God wants him. Almost. Almost. Do you remember where God had commanded him to return in chapter 31? Bethel. He said, I'm the God of Bethel. If you want to be with me, go back there. Let me show you the map. You see Shechem there, red. Bethel, where he's supposed to be, in green. It's just 20 miles north of Bethel. They're almost concentric circles there because they're so close on the map. Even zoomed in, they're close. Just 20 miles, that's it. It's just a one-day journey away by caravan. Jacob had already traveled hundreds of miles by this point, but he arrives at Shechem with all its comforts. We'll discover in chapter 35, Jacob's family assimilates in Shechem enough to have adopted their foreign gods after a few years of staying there. And Jacob thinks, eh, what's 20 miles? What's 20 miles? I'm, I'm practically right where God wants me. I'm practically in the center of God's will. What difference does 20 miles make? As we'll see in chapter 34, it makes all the difference in the world. 20 miles is going to cost Jacob his daughter's purity, the future blessing for two of his sons, and a whole lot of conflict in this new land of promise. Because as commentator Kent Hughes explains, partial obedience is always disobedience. We're dealing with a lot of partial obedience in our house right now with our 15-month-old son, Elijah. He's carrying around a handful of the dog's food. And I instruct him, Elijah, come here and bring me the dog food. 
He knows. He knows he's not supposed to mess with the dog's bowl. He also knows what come here means. So we can just get that out of the way. You can save your emails this week. Coming to my son's defense, he knows. <laughs> but what does he do? Does he come to me and hand it to me nicely? No, he pouts and he throws it at me. That's partial obedience. He did get rid of the dog food, which I wanted him to do, but he didn't do it my way, right? And it makes all the difference in the world. It made an even bigger mess, and that's what Jacob has gotten himself into here in Shechem, a bigger mess by not doing it God's way. Chapter 34, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land of Shechem. Now you're going to notice that chapter 34 is one of those rare chapters in the book of Genesis in which God is not even mentioned once. And that's usually a pretty clear indication in Scripture to the reader that God has got nothing to do with anything that's about to go down in this chapter. Every single character does wrong right from the start, right here with Dinah. Dinah should not have been playing with the Shechemites. I understand that she's a young girl now in her teens. She's growing up in a house with 11 brothers. I get it sympathetic. She's looking for a friend, but these are bad people. Bad news, and as 1 Corinthians 15, 33 warns us, bad company corrupts good character. Teenagers, who you hang out with matters. Parents, who your kids hang out with matters greatly. Do you know their friends? Do you really know their friends? How well do you know their friends? Verse 2, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Some translations say he violated her. The Hebrew here is quite clear. He raped her. And so you've got Jacob and Leah not keeping a close enough eye on their daughter, on their kids. You've got Dinah hanging out with the wrong crowd, running in the wrong crowd. And worst of all here, you've got Shechem sexual assault. But verse 3, his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. This guy's a real piece of work. First he rapes her, then he falls in love with her, then he treats her like a piece of property to be bought and sold, all while bossing his old dad around. But it gets worse, because at least Shechem is a godless Canaanite. At least he's got an excuse. Maybe he doesn't know any better. But Jacob has got no excuse. And watch how Jacob responds now to the news of his baby girl getting violated. Verse 5. Now Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, and so Jacob held his peace until they came. I've got two problems with this. Number one, what do his sons have to do with anything? I guess Jacob knew that they were short-tempered, and he just wanted to keep the peace, and so he was trying to scheme up a way to twist the news or break it to them softly in a way that wouldn't set them off. But before Jacob can come up with any more schemes, verse 6, 
Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field. Now they come in as soon as they hear it. And the men were indignant and were very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Moses, the author of Genesis, makes no bones about it. This is abhorrent. Jacob is less convinced. In fact, his silence here is deafening. And that's the second problem with Jacob's reaction in verse 5. Jacob, we hear, held his peace. Now, fathers, let me talk to you since it's Father's Day. There is a time to hold your peace as a father. When your daughter's prom date arrives to pick her up, after having asked your permission, clearing his background checked, all of his character references check out. You've confirmed that he's a member in good standing with his local youth group. He looks you in the eyes. He gives you a firm handshake. He calls you by your last name, Mr. Such-and-Such. He thanks you for letting you take his daughter out. He tells you to your face how much he respects her. Then, as a father, you can hold your peace. But when, despite all that, your daughter comes home later that night crying and tells you that he violated her, that is not the time to hold your peace. Unless by peace you mean your side piece. <laughs> because you're going to find the boy and you're packing heat, yes. That peace you can, you can hold. But Jacob is totally passive here. He's totally apathetic. At least the old Jacob would have connived up some devious plan to get revenge, but Jacob has gotten soft in his old age. And not the good kind of soft. Jacob compromises when threatened with conflict. Compromises values and principles. We see God's heart in his law in the Old Testament. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Our God is a God of justice who will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34.7. God punishes sin. And in his law, he commands us to do the same because God loves his people too much not to defend them from injustice, especially the most egregious kind of injustice committed here by Shechem. God doesn't let, let this kind of thing slide. Jacob does. Jacob isn't merciful. Jacob is cowardly. Verse 8, but Hamor spoke with them, with them saying, the, son of my, uh, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Let's just all be one big happy family. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell in it, trade in it, get property in it. This is a win-win. You can, you can settle down and accumulate wealth here. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give it, whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And still, Jacob remains silent. And so, his boys speak up instead. 
The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give you our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves. We will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, verse 25 tells us that Simeon and Levi are the ones behind this plan. They have no intention of striking a compromise, of intermarrying with the Shechemites, which is good. They shouldn't. But once again, they do the right thing by not compromising, and yet by, by not assimilating, and, not, and by defending their sister's honor. It's the right thing to do. But they go about it in the wrong way. They do it deceptively and excessively, as we're going to see. And perhaps worst of all, is actually their, their desecration of the holy rite of circumcision. Remember, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine. These Canaanites have no business being entrusted with a sign of God's covenant, circumcision. But Shechem jumps at the chance in verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So before you feel too bad for the Shechemites here in just a minute, just keep in mind, Shechem, the rapist, he is the most honorable of them all. Verse 20, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Now that request may have pleased Hamor and Shechem, but pretty sure it didn't please the rest of the village. And so they got to sweeten the deal. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? We're going to we're going to rob them. This is how we're going to take them over. It's just do this. You'll be in pain for a week. Then we'll be good. Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. Again, don't feel too bad for the Shechemites here. They are up to their own scheming. They just don't know who they're up against. Jacob's kids learn from the best. Master deceivers. Verse 24, so all of them went out of the gate of the city Listen to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now, Jesus also said, I think this principle is applicable here, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. While I don't think he necessarily had Shechem's metaphorical sword in mind when he said that, the principle holds true, Shechem's little dagger gets him into trouble in the first place with Dinah and her family, couldn't keep it sheathed. And now it's going to prove to be the very apparatus that cost him and his whole village, all his people, their lives. Verse 25, and on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, two people, whole village, 
Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, they took their swords, came up against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. They took Dinah out of Shechem's house. They went away. The rest of the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister, exacting their revenge. They took their flocks and their herds, the donkeys, whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Now the issue here is that Simeon and Levi violate one of the most famous and most misunderstood laws in the Old Testament, the lex talionis, as it's known in Latin, the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? Leviticus 24.20, which is, of course, not officially a law yet in Jacob's day, Leviticus, but his sons ought to know God and know God's heart enough by now that they are without excuse here. Many of us misunderstand this law because we're under the impression that the law of retaliation encourages violence and revenge. But actually, it's just the opposite. The intention of the lex talionis is to limit vengeance. See, God knows that you and I have no trouble getting even when we are wronged. That's not the problem. That's basic human instinct. The problem is that we don't want to stop at getting even, do we? You take my eye, I want to take both of your eyes. And so God's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, restriction puts a cap on the amount of retribution we are allowed to exact. In the case of Simeon and Levi's vengeance here, the punishment just doesn't fit the crime. This isn't an eye for an eye. It's more like an eye for the heads of your entire village. And Simeon and Levi will themselves pay dearly for their overreach. In chapter 49, at the very end of Genesis, Jacob is going to line all 12 of his sons up before his death, and he blesses them. But Simeon and Levi don't receive a blessing, God's blessing. Instead, they get a curse. We hear, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, Jacob says. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. I don't want to go where they're going. If, I, if I'm going to one compartment of Sheol, I don't want to go where they're going. For their ang- in their anger, they killed men, and in their will- willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that curse will remain on both of their lines for millennia to come because of this one act. And yet you may also remember something special, particularly about the Levites. What was special about the Levites? It was God's chosen tribe to become Israel's priests. Why? Well, number one, because God is merciful. And God is redemptive. He brings good out of evil and forgives. But also, number two, because I think God wants to make it abundantly clear that the Old Testament priesthood was not God's definitive plan for dealing with human sin. Israel, God says, you are going to need so much more than this polluted bloodline of corrupt priests to atone for your sin. You need a better priest. And God will use this account plus one other little verse 
Next week, chapter 35, verse 22, where we hear that Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, sleeps with Jacob's wife, Bilhah, the maidservant. So because of that, Jacob's blessing passes over Reuben, the firstborn, over Simeon, the secondborn, over Levi, the thirdborn, because of their revenge here, and instead passes to his fourthborn, to Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the priestly tribe. All right, so let's wrap this up. Verse 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. Listen, of all the offenses and all the offenders in this chapter, this reaction from Jacob here at the end, I think may be the worst. Not only was it Jacob's disobedience that led the family to Shechem in the first place, not only was it his neglect that enabled Dinah to wander astray, not only was it Jacob's apathy which prompted his sons to take excessive action and force, but after their murderous rampage, Jacob's response to his sons is essentially, now they're not going to like me. What if they attack me? It's all about me. Jacob doesn't care about his poor daughter's honor. He doesn't care about his son's senseless genocide. All he cares about is himself, his reputation, and his own safety. And so fathers, on this Father's Day message... Don't be like Jacob. That's your takeaway. For all of us, for all of us, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, don't be like Jacob. Don't compromise on God's calling on your life when faced with the allure of comfort or the threat of conflict. I cannot possibly know all of the things that God has called each of you to in your life specifically. But what I do know generally is that God has called us all to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Crosses aren't comfortable. Following Jesus, especially in the day and age that we live in today, will cause you plenty of conflict. I don't know what Jesus is calling you to specifically, but I do know Jesus has called all of us to go and make disciples of all nations. All ethne, like the Wolof and the Peel in Senegal, like the Pashtun in India, the world's largest unreached people group, 11 and a half million people, almost twice the population of the state of Missouri who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And you could be thrown in jail for speaking it. Plus we all know COVID is going crazy over there. Right? If there's anywhere we wanna stay away from, making disciples there will not be comfortable. It will bring conflict. Will we even go across the street 
make things uncomfortable with our neighbor to share the good news? Will we compromise on God's calling of us? Before you even think about going to the Pashtun or even crossing the street to talk to your neighbor, you better make sure that you have obeyed God's most important calling of all. You want to know what God's will is and how to do it God's way? Check John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. The crowd said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? If we want to do the will of God, what do we do? Jesus answered them simply, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning? If you haven't, I urge you, do not settle for the fleeting comforts of this world any longer. Following Jesus will bring with it conflict in this life, but in the life to come, it means joy and peace and hope and life forevermore. He is worth it. Let's pray.